Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang and Special Guest Lauren Peters, Chartered Financial Planner Helm Godfrey. Like most of the nation, you will no doubt have spent this past week digesting the UK electorate's decision to leave the European Union. For investors more than many people, this has already had significant implications, with markets all over the place and earlier this week, sterling falling to its lowest level against the US dollar for 30 years. Kate, you've been tracking some of the main movements. Which markets and which companies were worst hit in the aftermath of the vote? So predictably, UK equities were pretty affected by it. The FTSE 250 was really where the impact was felt. The FTSE 100 has has not been as affected and actually is now, you know, back to pre-Brexit levels, which has surprised some. But the difference there is between the FTSE 250, which you know, is, is the home of domestically facing smaller companies and the FTSE 100, which tends to be or is predominantly larger companies with, you know, international earnings streams. So FTSE 250 hit pretty hard and fund sectors hit hard where UK smaller companies in particular, and that's both open and closed ended, and really any fund investing in UK equities and property as well. In terms of stocks and sectors, it was the house builders that really got beaten up as well as banks and insurers. So we had RBS um, and Barclay suspended from trading on Monday after double-digit losses. And then Taylor Wimpy and Barrett Developments doing quite badly as well. So there are a lot of funds invested in those, obviously, which which were taking a hit because of that. What would be examples of some of these funds? Um, so Old Mutual UK Midcap was down, Franklin UK Midcap, and quite a lot of others in, in those sectors. Okay, now now what's been the effect on some other assets? Well, bonds and gold have been on amazing kind of rally. Everyone's been piling into those as perceived safe havens. So we've got bond yields at real record lows at the moment across Europe and in UK gilts, particularly after Mark Carney's recent statement about the potential of further rate cuts. So those are it's all those kind of safe haven assets which have really soared. But we've also had overseas equity funds really up. So in fact, if you look at the best sectors now over one week, it's Latin America, Japanese smaller companies, China, Asia Pacific. And a lot of that's to do with the weakness of sterling against the dollar and against um, foreign currencies, particularly the yen as well, which is another currency perceived as kind of safe haven. Okay, so that's the assets. Um, what would be some examples of funds that have held up against it and might be good options for mitigating downside going forward? Yeah, well, I guess there's two. There's the funds that have held up well, and then there's the ones that have kind of really taken off. And the ones which I think, if you're feeling nervous and cautious to look at, would be those ones which have held ground, because it's ones in things like the flexible investment sector. So these are kind of funds designed to not lose capital in bad times. So they're designed to kind of smooth out volatility. And RIT Capital Partners, which is an investment trust, that's done really well. It only it did fall, but only 3.6% in the past month, which is pretty good compared to what we've seen in other funds and so any of those ones which are kind of more cautiously more defensively positioned so things like absolute return funds as well are a place to look at other commentators are saying that the US might be somewhere to look at so the US and also global equity income if you you know want to kind of take a slightly higher risk approach and still be in equities so funds 
being named are things like Rathbone Global Opportunities Fund, the JPM US Equity Income Fund, and that's you know with the idea that these are areas which will be less impacted and give you a diversified portfolio away from just holding the worst hit UK stocks. Okay, yes, and you, you can actually read more about Rit Capital Partners in this week's fun tip. Now, Lauren, markets have recovered a bit since early this week, but there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead. And um, who knows, there might be some more volatility. How should investors deal with the situation? So markets did fall, actually, uh, but then they now are recovering. But it's important to remember that this kind of volatility in the markets is not new. We've seen it before in 2007-8, and then we also saw it in 2001 following 9-11. So we're also likely to see more volatility in the markets coming up to the US presidency and with the possible general election coming up this year as well. So the most important thing I would say to investors is to try not to panic. Typically, markets overreact to news, both good and bad. Volatility in itself shouldn't be the issue when you're investing for the longer term. So what investors need to avoid is selling out at low points or putting themselves in a position where they need to sell out at a low point. If there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the stock or the funds that you hold, then please hold tight rather than consolidate losses. What would you suggest uh, people do to mitigate downside? Well, the the more volatile the asset class, the more downside risk you are taking on. The only real way to mitigate any downside is to sufficiently diversify your portfolio so that you have a good spread of asset types and a good exposure to different sectors and different geographical regions. Some assets are fairly well correlated with others, so they're likely to move up and move down together. Others are less well correlated and should move in opposite directions most of the time. Not always, I should add. Picking the latter will give you some hedging against different market outcomes and events. So the portfolio has to be suited to an individual's risk profile as well. Um, There's lots of different models and techniques purporting optimisation and tactical asset allocation. Um, If your portfolio doesn't have the right balance or allocation, should you rebalance right now if it means selling assets at a loss or what should you do? It will typically depend on the type of model you're following. So many, if not most, advisors favour the top-down approach to investing. This is where you, the first part of building the portfolio is to choose the asset allocation and get that right. So in this kind of model, you would want to rebalance at regular intervals to maintain the right percentage allocations. If the whole of the market is down, depending on the underlying assets, it shouldn't make much of a difference overall, as you'd expect to be selling one fund at a low price and then buying another also at low price. Clearly, the difficulty is where you might be selling at a low in one asset class, but then buying into another when it's at a high point, in which case it would depend on your advisor or investment manager and the type of service you have agreed with them. So such as whether it's active or passive as a strategy or whether you've got an advisory or discretionary mandate. Now, on the flip side, some people say that tanking markets are a good buying opportunity. If we do have more falls, should you go bargain hunting or is this a high risk gamble? Well, that's a very good question. (laughs) Um, With investing, timing is everything. As mentioned earlier, most consumers should never be investing for the short term. So there should not be a need to liquidate invested funds in a hurry. It's important to have that easily accessible liquid fund, i.e. cash deposits, 
an emergency fund available for that. And anyone living off their investments, such as via an invested pension fund, should always look to have one to three years worth of income available to them in cash deposits at any one time. So timing over exiting the market should be easier to get right. Timing going into the market is much more difficult. But if research suggests an overreaction to bad news has occurred, then certainly it could be the case that there is an opportunity to secure gains. It's the contrarian approach, essentially. It's always difficult to predict if a downturn is just a blip or the beginning of something more prolonged and pronounced. But I think there are certainly some buying opportunities here. And for anyone looking to invest over the long term now, with no need to access the capital for a while, um, now looks like it might be the right time to do so. Okay, thanks, Lauren. Some really useful suggestions. Now, in uncertain markets, assets which are less correlated to mainstream markets are useful. This is especially the case if they offer an income, because even if you aren't getting growth, you are still getting some kind of return via dividends or interest. Kate, you've been looking at some funds which offer both of these attributes. What do these funds invest in and why are they resilient? Um, So these are property funds, but they're invested in specialist areas that you might not normally think of. So things like student property, um, and these these are student property, not like the ones that we might have (laughs) been in at university. They're very high spec, really lovely um, purpose-built properties, and they're with quite high kind of rents and mainly leased to international students. They're care homes, also purpose-built, very high spec care homes, or other medical um, properties or buildings and then big boxes so those warehouses where someone like Amazon might keep all of their goods before shipping it out to you these benefit from very different supply and demand dynamics to commercial property for example and they are, they are very resilient markets which just behave very differently to other kind of assets and to the rest of the market and have really held up well and it's for reasons like student property for example that there just isn't the space particularly in the UK for the amount of student housing that we need um, and there's massive demand particularly from overseas students for this kind of very high spec uh, property. So they're all, or most of the ones in these funds are 100% fully leased, fully occupied with waiting lists. And that kind of demand means that you've got a real power over pricing. And so these funds are benefiting from increased rent, increased you know, capital appreciation every year. The same is true with care homes. We've got an aging population, a very small amount of the right kind of um, homes for people who need long term care. And so it's it's this kind of very positive or negative, if you're thinking socially, but positive mm. supply and demand dynamic, which is just keeping these trusts going and generating really high returns. OK, so, um, yeah, a, a good outlook for the sector. I suppose there's always two sides of a story. Um, what are the risks of investing in these areas? The risks are of a, a slowdown in demand. Now, in the case of student property, obviously, you might think what, you know, what impact might Brexit have on student demand for UK universities and UK student accommodation. Now, the, the trusts that I've looked at, in fact, a big chunk of the students coming here are from non-EU countries. So arguably that demand will hold up. Um, but it's something to think about. And big boxes as well, if there is a shift away from using those to kind of smaller hubs for people like Amazon, then the demand as well will decrease. Although I think those those things seem unlikely and the demand actually seems to be pretty high and pretty resilient. There's also an, an element of cost here. These 
are not cheap. And working out the charges has actually turned out to be very difficult. Unlike an open-ended property fund, which might have an ongoing charge figure and it's quite simple, quite easy to find, these don't have simple ongoing charge figures. And people disagree about what you should count in the figure. Uh, So there are some people who argue that the ongoing costs associated with running a property portfolio, which are very high, as well as things like, you know, keeping the property maintained, you've got buying and selling a very illiquid asset, which is not like just holding a, a FTSE tracker. That's a big cost, which is obviously passed on to you as a shareholder of one of these trusts. So people who argue those should be included in the price and people who say, look, that's just not, you know, that's not a fund cost. That's not comparable. So basically what you need to do is just be very clear what you're going to be paying. There are also performance fees to think about. Now, not all of them charge these, but some of them do. So you need to have a proper scan and and look at what you might be paying for this, because though the returns are very high, the costs can be high too. Okay, thanks, Kate. That does sound complicated. But um, yes, I think in your article, you've um, um, explained to people how they can pick through those costs and and work out what they're paying. Uh, So have a look at this week's magazine. Now, Brexit and other market matters may be dominating your attention. But when you're an investor, it's never good to be off your guard. And quite literally, if you're a pensions investor, because scams are on the rise. Emma, you've been looking into this. What kind of scams are being perpetrated and why are so many people getting taken in? I think the main reason really is that pension scams are getting um, more and more sophisticated and there's also the impact of the pension freedoms. So before the pension freedoms, um, when you weren't able to access your your pension pot until much later, the main scam in town was for people to encourage you to access your pot early through pension liberation. And that still is around, but now when you have the the pension freedoms, what we're finding is that scammers are targeting people who can access their pots from age 55, and they're doing so sort of to encourage people to withdraw their funds and divert them into so-called amazing investment returns, amazing investments which offer returns such as 8%, 10%, 12%. And Mm -hmm. in the current low return Mm -hmm. environment, that obviously looks like a very attractive thing, but... Um, what t- tends to be the case that these scams and investments are unregulated mm. um, investments and these returns don't fail to materialise. And so that's one one scam. And then the other common tactic is to, for scammers to um, encourage people to move their pensions overseas, again promising that doing so can increase the returns over time. Um, but what they will fail to sort of mention is that transferring your pensions overseas um, when you have no intention to live abroad can lead to you know high tax penalties. So that's that's a different kind of scam that that's taking place now, and it comes it's due to the fact that people have more choices with what they do with their pensions, and as a result, scammers have also got gotten onto that and encouraged people to make bad choices. Mm. Is there any particular kind of uh, pensions investor that they're targeting? Um, yes, what we what we've found is that actually they're targeting more and more sophisticated investors. So these are people who um, you know might think that they are able to spot a, a scam, but research by um, Citizens Advice found that actually nine out of ten people fail to spot the the sort of common um, warning signs for for scams. I mean, these include things like unusually high investment returns as mentioned pressure you know advisement calls you advisor calls you up and says oh you know this is a limited time offer you better get in quick that sort of thing 
And yeah, so that's some of the, the issues that that people need to be aware of. But yes, scammers are targeting people who are interested in, in making higher returns and tend to go for people we found who are um, over 65 with savings of about £10,000 um, or more, according to research by the FCA. So more sophisticated savers and investors. Okay, so these people are being horribly deceptive, but mm. um, what can you do to try and avoid being taken in by them? Yeah, sure. I mean, the main thing to do is to really try and avoid all cold calls, any sort of unsolicited contact by somebody that you don't know, either through a phone call or through through an email or text, um, you know, be highly suspicious of that. And certainly don't sign anything. You know, sometimes these people will sort of ring you and say, oh, we can send over a courier, um, send you the paperwork. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. that, that these um, fraudsters will, you know, will put you under given the mistaken impression that it's actually going to be a good opportunity for you. So the main thing is to say, watch out for cold calls, watch out for pressure and, you know, people trying to make you make a quick decision. And there's also some of the language, telltale language that scammers will use. So they might say something like, oh, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity or, you know, this um, investment offers guaranteed returns. You know, it's completely tax free. All of these things sound, you know, are likely to be far too good to be true and if they sound too good to be true they probably are okay lauren have any of your clients reported suspicious activity or have you come across any potential scams that you'd like to warn people about well this is a really important point to discuss actually the usual ones i hear about are those that supposedly allow people to access their pension schemes before age 55 these are most definitely scams the earliest a person can an- access their pension is age 55, except in very few rare circumstances, such as if they are suffering from a terminal illness or if they're a member of a scheme which has a protected lower retirement age. So these scams often use phrases, as mentioned earlier, such as unlock the value of your pension or guaranteed rates of uh, investment return and end up with people often paying out a significant amount of their pension as a fee. Um, sometimes as much as half their pension pot as a fee, or even losing the whole amount. Uh, it's awful, it's theft. So unless you are terminally ill or part of a, prote- a protected scheme, such as maybe the fire scheme or the police service, it could well be a scam. I would always strongly recommend that individuals seek advice around their pensions from a fully qualified and authorised advisor. For those who want to transfer a final salary scheme out, which is a, a complex but perfectly perfectly legitimate thing to consider, they must talk to an advisor who has a specialist advanced qualification in this type of transfer work. So that's AF3 or G60. There's obviously these people, some of these people actually claim to be giving advice. So if you need advice on your pension, how do you go about finding who's genuine advisor and who's not? How do you check them out and uh, work out which are, are, are the real ones? So every advisor firm in the country has to be ad- has to be authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And every advisor also has to be personally authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority or FCA. So if you want to check this out, you can go on to the FCA's own website and there's an individual search register and a firm search register. So type the person's name or the firm's name into that register, and if they appear, 
they're authorised and it will say they're authorised or, or if it's lapsed. If they don't appear, then they're not authorised. So it's also worth checking their website to see what kind of FCA registration number they've got. And the other thing as well, that every advisor in the country must have um, a statement of professional standing. So you are well within your rights to ask your advisor or whoever has approached you for a copy of that statement of professional standing. And it should be valid. Okay, that's um, that's, that's very useful. Now, scammers, um, I think, as you said, they claim to offer advice and they claim to give you offers. How does this form of conduct differ from the way in which legitimate product providers and legitimate advisors mm. conduct their business? Very good question. Um, it's quite often difficult for people to distinguish between what's a scam and what's genuine. As I mentioned before, the genuine advisors will be registered and regulated by the FCA. So that's the first place to start by checking them out on the register. Um, in terms of offers, I mean, you know, m- many advisors do provide offers to pr- prospective mm. clients. There's nothing wrong with that. A discount is perfectly legitimate. Um Many advisors will offer a free initial meeting, for example, Mm. um, and that's perfectly fine. But I think the main thing to do is if you feel like, as mentioned earlier, the offer they're offering you is far too good to be true, um, such as, you know, huge returns of 8%, 10%, 15% guaranteed, that kind of thing. Or if you feel pressurised in any way whatsoever, I would definitely recommend that people just stop what they're doing, don't sign anything, take a step back and just read through the documentation and think about and consider fully your your options there. Um, okay, um, again, useful. One thing I'd pick up of, on from what Emma said earlier um, was with regard to cold calling. Would you, uh, a legitimate advisor or would, you know, say a legitimate asset management company, would they go and cold call people of offers? No. Right, okay. So <laughs> In a word. I yeah, mean, it, you, you don't know. call. So if you are cold called, that's when... That should be a yeah, warning sign. Because you don't, you as a firm, other things, you don't go cold, cold calling people to try and get new customers. There must be a reason right, yeah. for you to phone them up. Yeah. You know, perhaps it's an mm. old relationship you have with them as mm. a firm. So you're trying to locate that person. Yeah. And see or if they or want an existing customer. Yeah. Or an existing customer. But you course. don't go to new people and call them up and try and get no. the right. OK. No. Yeah. So exactly. So mm. if somebody is phoning you out of the blue, promising this amazing mm. offer. Think think to yourself, why have they called me? Yeah. What's in it for them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. probably trying to sell you something. Okay, that's all really useful. Um, Thanks for that, Lauren. And have a look at Emma's article in the magazine for some more tips on how to avoid these unpleasant individuals. Now, that's all we've got time for this week. So it just remains to thank Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer, and Lauren Peters, Chartered Financial Planner at Helm Godfrey. You can read more on how to manage your portfolio through the Brexit chaos, alternative property funds and ways to avoid pension scams in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.